All right. Well, let's um, go before the throne of grace and prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning. Lord, we thank you for the bright sunshine. We thank you for uh, waking us up and drawing us to yourself yet again, uh, Lord, uh, to come before you face to face, uh, Lord, to worship you corporately with our brothers and sisters. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless this day, Lord. Uh, I pray, God, that uh, whatever ailed us throughout the week, we would leave at the at the door and simply come before you to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that you would fill us up, Lord, according to your word, by faith, uh, for the glory of your precious name. And it's in that name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, last week we began looking at the regulative principle. What What is the, the regulative principle? How would you define it? That's right, according to his word. And we looked uh, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and uh, chapter 12, or chapter 4, uh, God tells us that we are uh, to maintain um, our walk with him according to his word, uh, that uh, we aren't to take anything away from his word, we're not to add anything to his word, uh, he simply speaks to us, and we are to respond to that by faith. And then we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, where God describes to us uh, how it is that, that we are to, how we're to uh, worship him. And the idea is that all of worship, all of our life is worshipful, but when we gather together, uh, to look upon the Lord face to face as the corporate body, uh, that this is a unique experience in which we worship God again according to His Word. Uh, that is how God desires to be worshiped, uh, according to His Word. Uh, he doesn't desire that we add anything to it, uh, that we take anything away from it. We looked at, uh, the irony of today's modern worship. Uh, whereby it's a lot of repetition, it's a lot of emotion uh, provoking, uh, there isn't much truth, there isn't anything that we're actually worshiping uh, in regards to God, who he is, uh, how he's worked in, in our lives, uh, the truth from God's word, it doesn't teach us anything, but it's nevertheless called worship. Uh, we also looked at uh, Article 7 of the Belgic Confession, uh, which again uh, reiterated the fact that God desires to be worshipped according to his word. Uh, we talked, we didn't look at, uh, but we also talked very briefly out of Leviticus chapter 10, where we see an example of Nadab and Abihu. By the way, has anybody read Leviticus 9 and 10? <laughs> you mean it. Two, two, two of us, Nadab and Abihu story, you mean? Yes, Yes. You mean okay. ever or just lately? Ever. <laughs> oh, I have read it, yeah. Okay. It, it's very, um, it's actually very exciting, and uh, if the Lord, uh, well, you ought to read it, um, Leviticus 10. If you did not know, Leviticus 9 and 10 are basically two-week, uh, they're, they're a two-week look into how Moses was to ordain Nadab, am I pronouncing that right? 
Yeah, maybe they have an abayu. Yes, okay, I'm sorry. Two weeks. Uh, there are cleansing rituals There are that, that Moses does to these men. Uh, they are sons of Aaron. There are requirements as to how they're to be dressed. And all of it is about setting these two men who are sons of Aaron apart to do the work as his, as God's priests unto the Lord. Uh, God gives them very specific directions on what they are to do in order to lead the people into worship. Uh, but can anybody tell me what it is that they did that was wrong that God considered a sin? What did they do? We all know the story, right? They died. They offered strange fire, and, and God literally took their life. The interesting thing is that Aaron witnesses this, and he's understandably upset about it. He just They just ordained his sons. They offered strange fire, and God instantly struck them down. And Moses goes to Aaron and explains to him what it is that God had required from them, how they, how they broke it, and what we're told is that Aaron had literally nothing to say in response to this. God did exactly what he promised he would do if somebody did what they did, but what was their sin? They, they offered something that God did not authorize them to offer, to give. So, so God told them what they are to give, what they are to offer. And we're not told why or necessarily what it was. Uh, it's called strange fire. Uh, God did not authorize that and he struck them dead. Well, this morning, with all of that being said, we're going to continue on uh, in a look in the regulative principle. Uh, but for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is to see how the regulative principle uh, also begins for us in the first four commandments of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, God describes for us there in the first four um, the commandments as to how we are to, to worship him. Um, so, if you would, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're only going to look at, at two of these today, the first two commandments. They are verses 1 to 6, uh, but um, we're only going to look at verses... Well, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to look at, at the first six verses this morning, not all four commandments. Uh, but Exodus chapter 20, and we'll begin reading verses 1 to 3. Uh, would somebody mind reading those for us? Nice and loud. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, very good. Uh, so what is the first commandment? 
should have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. It's it's interesting to note as we look into this uh, that when God had called the people out of out of um, Egypt, uh, headed towards Mount Sinai, where God was to establish His relationship with His people, the one of the things that you witness is that as the people set up, well, God instructs them to set up the the, the traveling uh, temple, if you will. Uh, um that I don't remember, maybe somebody could uh maybe you'll remember, maybe somebody else will remember. I don't remember if it was set up outside of the people or if it was set up inside and the people lived surrounding it. Uh does anybody know? Do you know? Right in the center. Okay, that's right. Okay, why do you suppose that God would put that in the center of his people? Everybody's living around it, and God sets up his presence in the middle of them. Why would he do that? To show he's among them. Yes, that, that's it exactly, in fact. It, it's interesting because as God establishes a relationship with his people, uh, one of the, the first things that he does is just by being amongst them, setting up his presence within their their rankings so that whether they're coming to worship him, to offer sacrifices, uh, to hear his word taught and preached, or the daily tasks that they had to do throughout the week, they're constantly reminded that God is amongst them. He's with them. He's with them when there's something discouraging happening. He's with them when something wonderful happens. Uh, he's always there. And he starts this commandment, or these commandments, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he begins his uh, explanation of what a relationship with him will entail by explaining that it was out of love that he brought these people to himself. But the idea is that the Lord has initiated this relationship. And it wasn't because the Israelites were so great. It wasn't because they were so numerous. It was simply out of his grace. He brought them to himself, and now he's establishing a relationship with them, one where they will constantly be reminded that he is amongst them, very much like Jesus Christ when he came to be amongst us. Right? Make sense? Okay, the question is, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. How does that apply to our conversation of worship? Why are we talking about the first commandment? Maybe the second commandment is a little bit more obvious, but... Things we place before God Yes. Look at this this word. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. Uh, the the word in Hebrew, let's see if I can pronounce it correctly, but is al panay. And it, it gets at the heart of the problem. See the, the idea here is that God desires our heart's attention, our affection, our thoughts and our minds and our strength 
to be designated unto him. Whatever God wants us to do with that, he will show us and lead us and guide us. Uh, he's given us what we need via the Spirit to persevere. All of those things are going to come from him. But at a heart level, we are to have nothing else literally competing for his attention in our hearts, in our life. Again, his living amongst the people was to show that Everything they did, he was with us for. And so he says, you shall have no other gods before me. The idea here, though, is that nothing is to be allowed in us that could confront God in terms of taking away from our affection and worship for God. It's literally, the the word depicts a confrontation whereby you love something more or just a little bit less than God, and suddenly God is competing with that thing for your affection, and he says, I want nothing to do with that. I want all of you. So worship literally begins with purging, as as he calls the people out to himself, and again, he's the one initiating this, right? He, he is, uh, uh, he is the one calling them, us, his people, the elect. And it's interesting to note, but in Hebrews, again, um, at the moment I'm forgetting where, but, but Paul talks about not everybody who was in geographic Israel is true Israel. Those who the Father has chosen, who the Son purchases on the cross, who the Spirit then uh, works in the heart of both Jew and Gentile are the elect. There are people who are here who are amongst them who are not. They are Israel, geographic, cultural, but they are not the people of God. Okay? Um, and as he calls them, one of the first things that he says is, is nothing else in your heart can rival your affection for me. That as, as we are to, to worship the Lord, one of the first things that we do to worship the Lord is to make our life, all that we do, to the praise of his glorious name. What I hear when I hear that is a whole different, uh, I don't know how else to say it, but a whole different uh, level of, of intimacy. God doesn't want part of me. He wants all of me. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. Uh, that says intimacy. It, it screams of um, affection and love and that he would desire that from us. Um Let me read for you from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 94 and then 95. So 94 is, what does God require in his first commandment? The answer, that on peril of my soul's salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, sorcery, enchantments, invocation of saints or of other creatures, and that I rightly acknowledge the only true God, trust in him alone with all humility and patience 
Accept all good from him only and love, fear, and honor him with my whole heart so as to, so, so as, so as rather to renounce all creatures than to do the least thing against his will. Uh, then secondly, uh, 95, what is idolatry? Idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place or trust instead of or besides the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. So the question I I suppose that I I would like to think about for just a moment before we move on to the next commandment is what does it look like for you and I to have no other gods or idols that would compete with the Lord? If that's what he desires from us, what must we do to purge ourselves from them? Notice uh, it says in, in question 94, what does God require in his first commandment? That I avoid and flee all idolatry, sorcery, enchantments, invocation of saints or other creatures, and that I rightly acknowledge the only true God, trust in him alone, and so on. So what do we do? We examine ourselves. Examine ourselves, yep, certainly. What else? Some <laughs> for some reason I, I I think the word examine is like a four four letter word. Like it's a like it's a bad word. Like we're afraid to 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 do that. Were you about to say something? Yeah, I was gonna say it's, it's as far as like Sunday mornings go, it's like leave them behind. We're coming to a place where we can leave that behind things that would distract us. Yep. Why why is examining ourselves so hard to do? why is coming to the precipice of entering into our time with the Lord um with the expectation that we leave our, our many troubles behind so that we could singularly come before him to worship him with the body? Why are, are those things difficult and, and why? Because of our sinful nature. It assists that. Yeah. And, uh, and wants to cling to our idols, those things that distract us or take us away from that devotion to God. And hence, it's important to then take a look at ourselves and say, well, what does that for me might be different? I'm, I'm sure it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. What is it that divides our heart that I set my heart on or, or tempted to and to identify that mm-hmm. and say, okay, I've got to, I've got to mortify that. I've got to put that off. I've got to put, kill that, you know, um, and. Nobody wants to do that. Our flesh recoils at that. You know, our, that's the battle that we're in every day. Yeah. So, so amongst the things that that you shared, one thing that that I heard um, is having a the, the softness of heart uh, and and being teachable and, and recognizing the idols. Um, in the secular and political arena, we, we hear some pe- a few people at least talking about 
owning up to your own snot, to use more family-friendly language. And, uh, yeah, there, there, there is that kind of dismay that we see so little of that in our wider society. So little of people willing to examine themselves, to take the proverbial log out of their own eyes. Um, one one thing happened to to Rachel and I when we were in um, uh, I think it was Kansas City, but we had we had become friends with this couple, and um, well, even back then we enjoyed having people over, and we had this couple come over, and to be perfectly honest with you, this this was really quite alarming to us. Um, we were we were visiting with this couple, and her her husband is what I would call a lay pastor. He isn't. He was just ordained. He never went to seminary. He has no real desire to go to seminary. He works a, a full time job. He's got three kids, uh, and in fact, both he and his wife work at the same company there. Um, none of that. I mean. I disagree with that, but that's neither here nor there. The The point of the story is that we had them over and something was brought up. Um, so he actually got fired because of, of something that his wife did. The, 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 the deacons are, are the ones who run the church and they can be men or women. Uh, but the deacons of the church... Um, they were asked by this guy's wife, are we allowed to do something? It had something to do with VBS. And they explicitly told her, no, that's just not the way that we do it. And out of that conversation, something between them and her was actually confronted about her because whether these people were biblically right to be in the position that they were in, um, they confronted something about her and she, it was right. The, what they were saying was true. It was accurate. It was, it was a, it was, it was biblical. She needed to deal with it. But, uh, the, the fiercest tiger that I have ever seen came out of that woman. She became, and I, this isn't about women being mean and nasty. Please don't hear that. What this is about is that she was confronted biblically on something that was in her heart that led to this conversation which they shouldn't have been having in the first place. And she would not crucify her flesh. She would not submit. And, and it became the ugliest thing. So she's at our home. She and her husband are at our home and she's talking all about it. And I'm sitting there, sitting there listening to her. And I'm like, well, uh, you know, that church isn't biblical. That's problem number one. Problem number two, it's not biblical that these unqualified men are deacons and the deacons are running the church. Well, that's two and three. And then number four, what they said to you, whether they're right, was right about you. And she came unglued. She would not listen to the truth. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of one. Amen? But that was ugly. And the really, before that, I had seen people respond to truth very differently. 
the point is, is that people's desire, like you're saying, to protect themselves from the truth, to justify themselves to the hilt is only increasing. And the Christian can't work that way. If we're going to worship the Lord, capital W, as we gather together corporately to sing songs of worship that teach us theological things and bless one another and serve together and enjoy fellowship to sit under the preaching of God's word, we can't approach God having this plethora of idols that we refuse to deal with. Now, let me say this. Just because we can acknowledge that we have them and repent of them doesn't mean that they're going to go away. The, the process here of avoiding and fleeing these things uh, that Hebrews talks about so easily entangling us doesn't happen overnight, does it? I mean, as, for some people, I suppose, some things it, it does. But <laughs> that was... <laughs> I don't think we've heard from them since. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, he's kind of a good old boy. And really the reason why the church wanted him is because he'll, we have a, an expression, he'll fluff their pillows. He'll tell them what they want to hear. Uh, and in fact, the, the church is growing full of great um, farmers and I don't know who else because they want him to tell them what they want to hear. Does that make sense? Um, but if we are a people wanting the truth, and we are wanting to worship God in spirit and in truth, then we will both adhere to God's word in examining our hearts and repenting of those things we need to repent of, while also listening to our brethren speak truth in love to us. Are there any questions or, or comments that you'd like to make? I was just going to say that, you know, really that's the whole process of sanctification. Yeah. Believer. We do not achieve perfection in this life. You know, we make those small steps of that obedience, as the catechism says, and yet we have that great motivation to live according to God's word, his law, of gratitude for what he's done for us. But it's not an instantaneous. It's done and we're, we're glorified now. You know, we have to exert all the power that the Holy Spirit energizes within us to do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we take one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, four steps back, and so on. That's mm -hmm. the, the picture of the normal Christian life. Mm -hmm. um, have any of you ever heard from what is her name? She's a false teacher. She's a prosperity preacher. Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer. Long, long ago, she said in a in a pulpit full of of people, both men and women, at one of her rallies, or <laughs> that after she became a a believer, she quit sinning. Can you imagine that? And all these people are out there. There must be something wrong with me if I didn't. Or what, or, you know, I, I don't mean to be condescending, whatever they're thinking, but, um, I brought that up one time and, and, uh, older 
friend of ours, uh, even still to this day, comes up to me and, and confronts me, and, and they say, well, how could you say that about who? Who is it, Joel? Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer. How could you say that about Joyce Meyer? Because I go home and, and look. Go home and listen. I I have enjoyed... Never mind. Never mind. All right. <clears throat> uh, four to six. Would somebody mind reading that again for us? Uh, Exodus 20, sorry. Four to six. Yes, please. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, thank you. What what do we see here? What do you notice? He's a jealous God. Yes. Yes. Anything else? I told Jim. I think I told Jim and Elton the first time we had come. Um, after we we had come in, and after service, when everything is is back to how do you put it? It's back to being. Lutheranized. That back there, there was a picture of the most effeminate Jesus I've ever seen in my life. He looked like he was wearing, what, what are you wearing your cheeks? Blush. Blush. He, he looked effeminate, but, um, when I was a little boy, <clears throat> my parents gave me a, a, a picture of, of Jesus you saw his face, but he, he's picking up a little boy. And, um, anyway, we, we are forbidden uh, from having any images that depict the, the look of, of our Father, of Jesus Christ, of God the Holy Spirit. We are, we are forbidden from it. Any, any carnal conceptions of God, we are to destroy. We are not to have anything to do with that. But there were a couple of things that that stood out to me. The first is verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. What does that mean that God is jealous? Or let me specifically ask this, is God envious of idols? No. The reason that God is not envious is because envy implies wanting something that does not belong to you. God wants what's his, amen? He's jealous for it, but his jealousy is not like our jealousy. He wants the exclusivity of what is his. He wants his undivided devotion, or I'm sorry, he wants our undivided devotion and worship from his people, from our hearts. Um, he's not jealous in a humanistic way. He is wanting what is his. And people in the world might resent this, but the purpose to which we were created in, the image, in his image was to worship him and to live for his glory. The, the other thing that it says here, verse 5 and 6 uh, it says, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but, verse 6, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, is this suggesting that God is going to punish our children for our mistakes? Is that the point? No. The answer is no. The idea, however, is that God so desires all of us. He, he desires that we, we, we don't have idols. We don't have man-made carnal conceptions of God such that, uh, when we pass our faith onto our children, our children don't repeat the same idolatrous mistakes that we had once made. That's what he desires from us. That's a big order. That's huge. It's intimidating. Eye-opening. But how do we, how, how do we go after, how do we pursue that? How do we, how do we pursue giving what is God, the exclusivity of our hearts, and not apologizing for it? Do you know that, that in Rome, it, with the plethora of, of their gods, I, I forget how many gods uh, Paul sees in uh, Acts 17, um, but does anybody know how many, the names of gods he sees in the uh, Areopagus? That is Acts 17, right? Anybody remember? I do not. It's no, neither. It What's that? I don't think it actually gives us an exact number. Well, good. There, that was, it was a test. I knew that. But he, he goes into the Areopagus and he sees a plethora of gods and he sees one because they're, they're so concerned with getting it right that they, they worship all the possible gods that they make one of these um, pillars to the unknown gods. They don't miss anybody. That's the, the point. But Paul goes, he goes into the Areopagus and he, he sees this, this um, plethora of, of different gods. I mean, how, how do we, how do we recover a, a sense of that, that our, our goal is to, to bring our children to church. That, that's a, a fantastic, um, well, I want to be careful. Sometimes children go astray. But we're, we're talking about our heart's desire that we do everything that we can do within our power to raise our children to love the Lord our God uh, unapologetically. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a situation in my own life. You guys may or may not know, but I have an older brother. His name is Jason. He goes by Chaz. Um, I think I've mentioned before that he used to own a restaurant and then he became a bounty hunter and he actually got two knee replacement surgeries and he decided to to quit bounty hunting, and now he does real estate. So while he was recovering from his double knee surgery, I mean, think about that. He's only three years older than I am. He's 46 years old. He got both of his knees replaced. Um, and while he was recovering, he, he learned as much as he possibly could about selling homes and real estate so that when he finally recovered, he could take the test and become a real estate agent. He's just a very gifted guy. That's all there is to it. He's smart. It's all get out. 
But somewhere along the line, my brother, um, he walked away from the faith. He didn't just walk away from the faith. He was angry about it. It was personal. So I want to be careful to say that even in doing our very best, children, God does allow children to go astray. I want to be careful to say that. But we're talking about the the purposeful desire of raising our children so that they grow up loving the Lord God and not pursue some of the sins that we had pursued. But it says here, verse 6, but shows showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is he saying to us here? Verse 6, showing us mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. In the, in the midst of, of what it is that we're to, or how we are to worship him, what is he telling us? He wants to show us mercy. Yeah. And he will. He will. He, he makes us the promise. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children, provided the children are pursuing the same mistakes that our parents have made. It says, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, whenever you see the word but in the Bible, it is it is a... I don't know how to express that. My words are going to fail me. But there is an extremely sharp distinction between what was said and what is now being said, but showing mercy to thousands. So when we're trying to make much of him and worship the Lord, when we actively pursue getting rid of idols, when when we're trying to uh, prevent anything from getting in our hearts that is before God, he makes us the promise that he will show mercy to thousands of those who are seeking to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the most encouraging thing I've ever heard. So back to a point that we've discussed before. Saturday night rolls around. Or Saturday. We've had various struggles throughout the week. Perhaps we have arguments, unforgiveness. Um, I don't know. The, the list goes on and on. The week carried or carried its, you know, it went on the way that it had. And we kind of, we finally come to Saturday evening and we're thinking about what the Lord has called us to do. How do we, from everything that has happened, leading into our coming together to worship the Lord, how do we make ourselves right? How do we come here prepared both to worship him, to love one another, and respond appropriately to what God's word calls us to do? How do we do that? Prayer. What's that? Prayer. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Have any of you ever fasted? You have. What do you mind if I ask you what was that like for you? Liam? Um, generally, like, resets my body. So I fast around. I'm sorry, what? It resets my body. Okay. Didn't do anything for you spiritually? Um. 
Sometimes, I don't know, it depends on why I'm doing it. Okay, has anybody else fasted? What was that like? Well, it was trying. <laughs> because of hunger, but that's the point of it. Yeah. But I think it's uh, it's an activity that is meant to make you deny yourself and put God first in terms of seeking Him in prayer when you could be eating or making a meal, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so it's uh, it kind of like maybe puts a greater focus on it then because you are you know, more intense about your prayer because you're denying hunger pains or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you ever ever considered in in preparation for Sunday morning, maybe not the entire day, but but skipping one meal on Saturday to prepare yourself to come and to to ready yourself to, to come and worship the Lord? Um, I don't know necessarily what I think of this because biblically fasting is cutting food out, uh, but some fast from television or I don't know, other other activities. Again, the, the Bible is very clear. Fasting biblically is keeping yourself from, from eating for the express purpose of utilizing that time that you'd be you know, eating and indulging the flesh uh, with, with delicious food um, so that you can pray and, and seek the Lord. Um... But so we, we talked about, or Sandy mentioned prayer. We're talking about fasting. How else can we prepare to come to worship the Lord? Reading His Word. What's that? Reading His Word. Yeah, and, and really thinking about um, every every week the um, the bulletin is is put out. You said that's a usually. Um, Okay, on Tuesdays, we usually try to put that on the website. The passages that we're going to go over on Sundays are always put. Um, thinking about what what we're marching through in the book of James, uh, I don't think it'll be the end of this month, but certainly the beginning of March, we'll start getting into the book of Genesis. The point is, is thinking about the word that we're going to look at on a Sunday morning as a church, um, praying possibly fasting, um, those things help prepare us. And as we've said, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, the first Sunday that we started talking about Reformed worship, is that's what God would desire from us. You can't just show up. I mean, oftentimes we just kind of show up in whatever state we're in. Maybe we argued with a spouse on the way here. Maybe we're frustrated about something that happened over there. There's any number of things that can happen to us, but at some point we have to we have to learn to confess those things before the Lord and ask Him to help us ready ourselves so that we can give ourselves yet again to Him completely, to hear from Him, to look upon you know to meet Him face to face together as the corporate body. Any last comments or or thoughts? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for the regulative principle and worshiping you according to your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as you gather us together to meet you face to face, that you would ready us, Lord, that we would anticipate hearing from you and be challenged by you for the glory of your precious name. For it's in that name that we pray. Amen.